0: Welcome back to Days of the New. I wasn't sure you would return for more limp biscuit, but here you are. In today's show we discuss significant other, which is either one of the greatest or absolute worst new metal albums of all time, which is sort of the same for this podcast. Coming at you from Kansas City, Missouri and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, it's your not so proud boys, Nick and Kevin with Days of the New. So
1: Uh, you know, I've been, I've been better. I've been worse. I'm simply surviving. I think that's about all that we can ask these days. You know, I'm drinking a beer. It's, uh, you know, still a free
0: country. You know, I find in times like this, I turn to scripture. I want to uh, borrow from 1 Corinthians. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So what I'm trying to say is, Nick, is that when I was a child, I drank Old Granddad 114 proof. But I put away childish things. And now as a man, I drink Knob Creek 120 proof. Oh, shit. On a Tuesday. That is not an inexpensive bottle of bourbon. No, it is not. But these are drastic times, my friend.
1: Fair enough. I just have your uh, standard uh, yellow label. Um, four Roses? Four Roses! Hey! Yes, yeah, Four <laughs> Roses, but... Uh... I can't, uh, it's only 642 and I broke the alcohol rule to drink a beer with you, but I can't, I can't get into the liquor this early. We, we know, we know where I stand. I will carry the burden for both of us, my friend. Please do. Also like I'll be sleepy time in like two hours and I don't, I don't want that to happen.
0: This is a good point. <laughs> well, before that happens, we have to get down to the business of talking about the B-I-Z-K-I-T. That's right. And the album Significant Other. We're back, baby. Nick,
1: what did this album mean to you at the time? Um, To be perfectly honest, 1999, I didn't enjoy the press run-up to this album. I very much Mm -hmm. remember sitting in the break room at Old Navy, looking at an issue of Spin Magazine with Fred Durst's dumb face on the front with his red cap on, trying to figure out how this happened. (laughs) I do remember hearing Nookie and we'll get into my thoughts on that song later, but like I was eagerly anticipating the rest of the record. And then it got here. And uh, I didn't really like Limp Bizkit anymore after. Wow. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I very much remember a sunny summer day in Manhattan, Illinois, where I grew up, where I drove my 1978 Ford Fairmont to the cool record store to pick this album up. And as my heart beat nervously, I put this thing into the CD player And I heard the first song, and I knew that the Limp biscuit that I wanted to love was fucking dead.
0: Yes, it was. Yes, it absolutely was. Whatever you expected to hear, based on $3 bill, y'alls, is not here. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For me, Nick, I I gotta tell ya, I I have two distinct memories of this album. Mm -hmm. Number one is sitting outside of the old punk hardcore club in Winston-Salem, North Carolina that was called uh, Pablo's. And Pablo's was a fire hazard run by teenagers whose landlord was an aging, gun-wielding pedophile. <laughs> oh, by the way, he's also a pole watcher now.
1: Oh, very so, cool.
0: Yeah. I remember one of the key tastemakers in the Winston-Salem scene. He was sitting outside with his arms folded, and uh nookie the video for nookie had just come out he's like i'll fucking get it man guy dresses up like a fucking monkey and play you know i'm never gonna this little band. That, uh, guy dresses up like a fucking monkey and i was like i don't think he's just like a monkey but you're really scary so i'm not gonna argue what, with you uh, and i what was your favorite of west borland's many costumes my favorite west borland getup is actually from the roland video when he's completely lit up with the, he's really come into his own. You know, what I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I yeah. like a more simple Westmoreland. I think, I think he called it the burnt match, where um, his head and ah, neck yes. were painted black, but the rest of him was just like mostly naked. Yeah, and I, I, I like that look. It was one of those things where you're
0: watching this very cool tastemaker in your town decry this band. You're like, all right, well, I'm not going to say shit about this, and that's my first memory. And my second memory is that a bunch of guys I went to high school with who were not into the same shit I was into at all, we lied to all our parents, hi, mom, and went to a party in Chapel Hill at some college uh, like fraternity sorority house. I was 17 or 18 years old, driving to Chapel Hill uh, under false pretenses. The sun is going down, and one of them goes, hey, have you heard the new Limp Bizkit album? I was like, No. I I totally had. He puts it in, and we drive off into adventure with Limp Biscuit blaring in the SUV. And that night, I made out with a college girl. (laughs) I did. I made out with a college girl. And I'll never forget that moment where she just looked over and kissed me. And then I heard, oh, my God, Stacy, what the fuck are you doing? He's a child. (laughs) Yeah, because we would have been like 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She starts crying. I guess she was too drunk and her boyfriend had broken up with her. And I don't know. I had a great night is my point. <laughs> and uh, Limp Biscuit was the soundtrack to that. That kind of ties up my whole, all my feelings about Significant Other. It was a great time for me and a horrible time for everyone else. Yeah, it sounds about right. Personal experiences aside, Significant Other is without a doubt one of the most important Albums in new metal. Mm-hmm. It would signal the absolute zenith of the genre in the cultural zeitgeist, and it also would mark the decline of new metal's popularity. Yeah, this is
1: the precipice. Um, yeah, you know, if this was um, an acid trip, we're peaking right now.
0: The, yeah, this is it. Nothing can go wrong, but there's like demons creeping in from the uh, from the you know corner of your vision. Shiny corporate demons. I really cannot overstate how big this album was. It was released on July 22nd of 1999, and it hit number one on the Billboard charts on July 10th. It spent four weeks there, and an additional 56 weeks in the top 50. In total, Significant Other spent 103 weeks in the top 100. Alright, wrap your head around that. It is certified platinum in Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Switzerland, and the UK. It is two times platinum in Australia.
1: Oh, you hear bright stuff, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I I did it all for the
0: Shayla. (laughs) You can take that crisp and stick it up your bung. (laughs) I don't know. Is that how people somewhere talk?
1: Uh, We'll see if this bit sticks. Oh, boy.
0: It is six times platinum in Canada and seven times platinum in the U.S. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. This album was in Billboard's Top 200 chart for album sales of the entire decade, and it's ranked at number 83. The song Nookie was nominated in the Best Hard Rock Performance category at the 42nd Grammy Awards ceremony. (sighs) Do you know who it lost to? No, but I'm glad it lost. (laughs) Well, it lost it to Metallica's
1: Whiskey in the Jar roll. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Which everybody alive, if they have heard the Thin Lizzy vi- version, would realize that like Metallica was not covering classic Irish folk song Whiskey in the Jar. They were covering Thin Lizzy's version of Irish classic folk song Whiskey in the Jar. And you should just listen to the Thin Lizzy one. In fact, you should just listen to Thin Lizzy because Thin Lizzy fucking rules. Could not set it better
0: myself. The album itself was nominated in the category of Best Rock Album. Do you know who it lost to? So
1: we're in 1999. Mm hmm. Father of the Leader?
0: No. It lost to Santana's Supernatural.
1: <laughs> oh man, it's a hot one.
0: Yeah, Best Rock Album. <laughs> uh, hey, fuck, are you going to go up against Rob Thomas? I'm not.
1: Oh man.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the lead up to this album. Nick, as you discussed, their cover of Faith pushed them into the lower orbit of stardom. So here they are after a brutal two-year touring cycle for their first album, during which they have a hit song that they didn't write, but it's getting an insane amount of play on MTV. And this is truly a make or break moment. Almost immediately, they go back into the studio to lay down material that they wrote during the family values adding, as well as writing some new tracks there's a lot of pressure here because you don't want to be alien ant farm right 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 for sure they have this moment and they damn well knew it in an interview to guitar world where else Wes borland stated too many people started calling us baby corn corn showed us the ropes of touring but i don't think we've taken anything musically
1: from them which yeah come <laughs> on off, yeah Anyway, it's time to leave the mother's nest. Says the only other person playing an Ibanez seven-string guitar at the time.
0: No no shit. Nothing musical. No, nothing at all. We're just going to ignore the... I'm sorry. (laughs) But they damn well knew that it was now or never. We have to mention member number six of Limp Bizkit. And that is MTV. Throughout the reign at the top of the world... MTV served as the Fox News, One America News Network, and Joseph Goebbels combined for Limp Biscuit.
1: I'm
0: I'm not fucking kidding you, dude. Of the research I did for this album, 26 different articles came directly from MTV.com. Wow. Yeah. They had unfettered access to Limp Biscuit, and in turn, Fred and the gang had one of the biggest media outlets ever to do their bidding. I went back and I searched the archives even further back. The first mention on mtv.com of them heading into the studio to record this album came on November 12th of 1998. Now remember that album came out on June 22nd of 1999. In the time between that then and the album's release, MTV produced over 40 articles chronicling this process. Yeah, forty individual. Give the people
1: what they want, and what they want is Limp Biscuit.
0: Because you tell them that's what they want. Yeah, MTV plays a very large part in the Limp Biscuit story and in this mythology and in making them what they are. With all eyes on them, Limp Biscuit head into the studio with producer Terry Date. I'm just going to read you a few select choices from Terry Date's discography. Soundgarden, Louder Than Love, Bad Motor Finger, Pantera, Cowboys From Hell, Vulgar Display of Power, Far Beyond Driven, and The Great Southern trend Kill. Deftones, Adrenaline, Around the Fur, White Pony, Self-Titled, and Ohms, White Zombie, Astro Creep, Dredge, Catch Without Arms, Unearthed Three, In the Eyes of Fire, The Fall of Troy, In the Unlikely Event, and the amazing 1988 debut of Sir Mix-a-Lot, Swax. <laughs>
1: Swass. Oh, God. What? What's wrong with swass? I mean, I think it aptly probably describes what was going on inside the Janko jeans of every member of Limp Bizkit during Beach MTV 1998. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Terry Date
0: was and is one of the best producers in rock music.
1: I read that they went with him because he doesn't pick apart the songwriting as much as a lot of other producers are, he but he's there to make it sound real good.
0: It's very interesting you bring that up. Wes Borland, when he was asked what Terry Date brought to the table, he says, we chose Terry because he doesn't actually do what a producer does. He doesn't get overly involved in the music end of things. Well, good for Terry that there wasn't really a lot of music end of things to get involved <laughs> yeah, there's not in. a whole lot
1: of music on this record.
0: But as you may have noticed, Date, he has a history of working with bands through long stretches of albums. Limp Biscuit's no exception to that. After a significant other, Date would go on to produce their next three albums, uh, 2000's Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, 2001's remix album New Old Songs and 2003's Results May Vary so Date apparently says that they're great guys to work with in 2012 he told One Louder magazine they're some of my favorite people to work with some of my favorite times in the studio and some of the best musicians I've worked with I will support those guys always and don't agree with people making fun of them well Terry you're gonna fucking hate this episode (laughs)
1: boy howdy
0: oh god they have the time and i really just can't stress how crazy it is for a band to have been able to go into the studio november of 98 and take their sweet fucking time recording to release It's
1: so much money isn't that crazy but that's the 90s dude like that's the type of money you had well yeah when you had to go to sam goody and cds cost 17.99 for Mm -hmm. one friggin album Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. there was a ton of money. Yeah, so they
0: spent the better part of a year just perfecting these master, these audio masterpieces with one of the best producers in rock music. There's a lot to unpack with this album, so I'm just gonna start with the title itself. This is according to an interview in June 99 from Where Else MTV. (laughs) Fred says, significant other, it's like Such a title, you know what I mean? There's no limits to what it means. Anything it was before, record, band, attitudes, feelings, it's the significant other. This is the new level. Whether it's a lower level or a higher level, we'll let our fans determine that.
1: All right, cool. That's how to say a bunch of nothing when trying to say something.
0: As far as subject matter goes, Limp Biscuit apparently wanted to write a record that would address the year of touring and address, uh, adjusting to life as a rock star.
1: Oh, weird. So like every other band's second record?
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so the first record, you got however long between the time when you your band started to the time you got noticed to the time you go into the studio. That could be five, ten fucking years to write all these songs. You could have a hundred songs. Okay, well, these 11 are going to make the record. Your second album, you're writing on the back of a tour bus and you want to get out while you're hot. But you're also like... Torrance sucks and sleeping on a bunk bed <laughs> blows and like so usually the second album is all about either being a rock star or missing home because there's nothing else going on in their lives at this time unless you're like Rage Against the Machine and then you're gonna like write about a political party in Slovakia but you know
0: remember when Rage tried to back Ralph Nader oh guys
1: <laughs>
0: oh sweet Jesus also can you imagine having the the bunk bed like above West Borland it's like
1: Who the fuck put all this silver paint on my bed? Imagine having the bunk under any member of Fear Factory aside from Burton C. You're just like nailing extra support into it. I wish it smelled like machines.
0: It's the smell of a new machine, but it's a CPAP
1: machine. Oh, no. Uh, For anybody that doesn't get those jokes, go listen to Fear Factory. They sing about robots a lot. A lot. So yeah,
0: they wanted to talk about life as a rock star, and in a surprising departure from MTV News, uh, Durst told Billboard Online, I learned a lot from touring and I've made wrong decisions in terms of business partners and girlfriends. I want to forgive all the people who betrayed me, because they gave me the emotions that are on this album. It's a big old thank you to them. Okay, Fred, you fucking Floridian jackass. <laughs> like... What, you want to show all the haters? Oh, like, stick it up your yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where it's highly publicized. And if you haven't guessed by now, the money behind this album is huge. It bears reminding that the internet is not the thing you think it is right now. So Oh, for sure. The way that Limp Biscuit and Interscope got this album out to the world was by releasing an 800 line where you could call in to hear samples of the new songs. Wow. Nick, I have that number. Does it work still? I don't know. Do you want to find out? Let's go. 1-800-993-9370. This call may be recorded for quality assurance. Wow. We have a special promotion today for select out. callers. If you are over 50, please press 1 now. If not, press 2. I pressed 2. Thank you for your help with our survey.
1: What the fuck? All right, well, that was... Hold on, no. Go go back and press 1. Okay. What happens if, oh, what yeah. happens if we're over 50? Okay, all right, let's see. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> They're like, oh, this guy, this guy, just disconnect Yep. Yeah.
0: You are over 50. Please press 1 now.
1: Because you don't know how to use the internet.
0: Thank you for calling the Medical Alert Center. This is Jessica on a recorded line. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. So, uh, with our promotion today, you actually have the opportunity to a receive robot. a free
1: medical it's alert. It's a robot. Direct, so congratulations. Um, you know, it's that little button you wear around your neck that you press in case of an emergency. Does it play Nookie? Now, when oh, shit, you're
0: participating in our
1: monitoring program, um, you actually can get your medical alert Okay, well, this is a scam, so, so uh, never mind. No, no, wait, I need to hear what she... No, like. It, we a <laughs> being. We're not going to get a human being. They're going to fucking ask for my social security number. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, I found that number on the Angel Fire page, Pat's
1: Kick-Ass Limp
0: Biscuit site.
1: <laughs> How many of those like sparkly animated GIFs were on that website? So
0: fucking many, dude. <laughs> Everything was moving. Like all the text, it was just bouncing up and down. Yeah, I independently verified that this was indeed a real number that you could call to hear previews of Limp Biscuit songs. So thank you to Pat from Pat's Kick-Ass Limp Biscuit Angel Fire page. That was kind of the promo rollout. Before we even put the CD in the CD player, I would like to talk about the album art. Okay. So it's iconic, man. It is. It's the perfect visual representation of 1999. This shit belongs in the MoMA. It's got your wholly unlegible spelling of the band's name, the title of the album in courier font, and expertly placed parental advisory warning, so
1: you know this shit's gonna slap. My first uh, response and reaction to seeing that is, is this band just called Fred Durst now? Like the rest (laughs) of the band, like why is there a cartoon of Fred Durst on the cover of this?
0: Oh, I'm glad you asked. So the album credits Fred Durst with art direction. Oh, there you go. So what you're seeing here is Fred Durst's vision. This is what he wanted to bring to life. As for the actual artist behind this masterpiece, it was created by acclaimed L.A. graffiti artist, Kalen Ackerman, who goes by the alias Mir One. This was actually created on a wall. Oh. I have some footage of him actually spray painting it up on a wall. What I never noticed before until researching this album was that if you look closely on the album cover, you can see an electrical outlet that's been painted over. Oh, wow. What's interesting is that the clothing company Conart is also credited here. According to the company, ConArt was the first company to feature graffiti artists as the design talent behind the brand. At the time, Mir was designing for ConArt. Hang with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Here's an interesting fact. ConArt was founded by a guy named Ash Hudson. Do you know who Ash Hudson's brother is? I do not. A guitarist by the name of Slash. Oh, wow. So in 2018, Brother Slash shared a photo on Instagram of the poster for the Louder Than Life Festival, where Limp Bizkit was set to headline over Slash's Project Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the conspirators. Whatever the fuck that is.
1: Uh, Miles Kennedy is uh, the lead singer of, what's the new, the second Creed band? Alter Bridge. Really? Yeah, it's Creed, but they kicked out Scott Stapp and Miles Kennedy joined.
0: Basically, what happens is that Ash, he sees this and he posts how the fuck is limp biscuit headlining over slash what's wrong with this picture i wouldn't want to go on stage after slash and miles tear it up just make you really seem shit like huh we still suck we should break up again
1: it's not wrong i mean like i i think slash is a garbage human i don't want to listen to him play guitar ever but um from a musician standpoint both miles and slash are fucking light years ahead of limp biscuit all
0: right hold on nick i give you tickets hey, I've got Limp Biscuit tickets. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go see Limp (laughs)
1: Biscuit. Okay, all right. Well, hey, there's your answer. There's your answer. I think it depends on who the fans are. Like, is it like a bunch of like 19-year-olds or is it a bunch of like dads that buy the expensive guitars at Guitar Center? (laughs) Because they're going to want to go see Slash. (laughs) I never realized that when I was a kid. And like, you know, you'd have your shitty Epiphone and then like you'd trade it up and trade it up and eventually maybe you'd get like a fucking entry-level Les Paul, but you'd see at least like $6,000 guitars. It's like, who the fuck is buying this to support this whole business? Oh, it's fucking dad's. It's like dentists and shit. Yep. Nobody has bought a Paul Reed Smith and then gone out and like been in a successful band. You either get that shit for free or you're like a fucking surgeon. Before
0: we get on to the songs on this album, I want to talk about the song that's missing. I learned this from my MTV research. One of the things they really put out there was that Eminem was going to be on this album.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah. There is a Eminem Fred Durst song, which was recorded and was not put on this album. It's called Turn Me Loose. Would you like to hear it?
1: Yeah, I I very much would, because I imagine that Eminem just eviscerates... Fred Durst In terms of performance
0: This is 1999 Eminem So he is arguably At the height Of like right. his MC And he's just coming off Rockus Records
1: They're both about to say A bunch of like Really like Anti-gay And misogynist things <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna play The first little bit Of this for you. So I said to the girl I'm like What up girl Shut up girl I Showed up a cut up squirrel She's green, bloody murder So loud everybody heard her Slapping in the
0: mouth the car Being a nutty murderer I moved on to two blondes so we're kissing on a futon Ooh. Then both and I was like, uh, check this out, tucks. I'm looking for cookie puss. I need to speak to now. These two bonds, I offered them both a drink. this you would
1: think, could get the party started. But instead them girls turned their heads, opened up their mouths, felt like somebody farted. So what was top for- Okay Holy shit. Eminem, if you just did like a word count of their two verses, Eminem had like four to five times as many words as Fred did.
0: That first bar would go on to become the uh, intro for the uh, Eminem song Who Knew off of the Marshall Mathers LP. Yeah. Boy, does that song
1: suck. Yeah, that production is terrible. It's like uh, the intro signed to Law and Order.
0: (laughs) Uh, Here's what Fred had to say about it at the time. He outlined the premise of this song as it's about me and him walking into a party together and he's chilling out and getting faded, meeting chicks, and he's telling me he's on MTV and telling me his record's coming out. But then I come around and all the chicks want to hang out with me because I sold more records. Stuff like that. It's pretty funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like the funny, the fart joke that he put in there. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, that was good. Meanwhile, Eminem's
1: singing about, like, a murdered squirrel. (laughs) You know, this is
0: what happens when you just give prescription drugs to white kids. Now, why would not such an amazing song have been included on Significant Other? Well, according to Fred we were kind of forcing it to happen. Most of the keepers happened because we didn't force them.
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate And how writing songs goes.
0: Yep, so on to the main show. Significant Other is comprised of 15 songs, three hidden tracks, and clocks in at 59 minutes. Let's go. We start with what else, the intro.
1: Why do they always have to do some stupid intro? Because they
0: need something to walk out on stage to. We've been over this.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
0: You are in an arena in your local dipshit town, and they're playing just the, you know, the Q101, blah, blah. And then all the lights go down, the music goes off, and everyone goes, woo, And then you hear that boom, 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 boom. I mean, come on, dude. You wanted the, the worst. worst, you, you got, got the worst. worst. <laughs> it's... Really, the opening salvo for the whole Limp Biscuit experience. They revel in their cartoonish buffoonery and they know that you think they suck. So, much like Emerging from the Giant Toilet, this is just a continuation of that. So, then we get what is going to be our first musical offering of a post $3 bill, y'all, Limp Biscuit. And that's just like this. And right at the gate, it's just not heavy it's they're delivering a more polished product fred's rhyming style that he kind of put with
1: that
0: like now it's just becoming kind of like this cartoonish way of like punctuating his delivery after listening to this album 50 times in a row i really fucking hate this song
1: yeah yeah me too i think it's shiny overproduced garbage like bands don't sound like this like there are so many tracks and layers like this is impossible to play live without just uh, 30 backtracks playing behind you. And like, yeah, there's just nothing punk about that. And like, while Limp Bizkit isn't a punk band, when $3 bill dropped, it was in like the hardcore section of record stores until they figured out where to put it. And like, this just shows that that's not what they are about and that they want to be a hip hop group with guitars. They want to be a party band. They wanted to be the Motley Crew of new Metal.
0: Yeah, I mean Limp Biscuit is the band who was that cool guy in high school who whenever you go home for Thanksgiving you're like fuck why oh god he's coming up to me. All right. Yep. Nope, sure, I'll do a shot. That's what Limp Biscuit is, but at the time this is peak year senior high school. Limp Biscuit.
1: We have a new metal trope. We have a a brain and insane rhyme and I interestingly think he talks about uh, how they start riots, which is A lot of foreshadowing over uh, something that I'm sure you're going to talk about a couple songs from now.
0: Yep, I sure am. And and that is, uh, I don't think they really banked on how true that would become. But next up is the song that by and large was Limp Biscuit's introduction to the world, and that's Nookie. This would forever cement the visual identity of Fred Durst and what he is calling his alter ego, Red Cap, I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, I do too. This song,
1: there was something undeniably catchy about it. The production's insane. The lyrics are beyond stupid, but it has such a sick groove. I mean, Wes Borland plays almost the same guitar part through the whole song. He's playing a guitar with four strings on it, tuned to some weird tuning that he invented. So, like, it's very different from that down-tuned seven-string to get his bass heavy and as he- possible. It's just got this ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like the, it's just different.
0: I've seen a bunch of different kind of recollections of how this song was created. One of the ones I found interesting was that according to Borland, uh, Nookie came together when the band was jamming on another album track, and suddenly they realized they had something while they were messing around with the beat from an Italian porno, which uh, inspired the musicians to in turn call it nookie i don't believe that for a fucking minute i think they've been asked so many fucking times what is nookie about what is nookie about that they just started making shit up but when you do think about that it kind of has an italian porno vibe italian porno sounds hairy it does (laughs) oh god could you imagine (laughs) (laughs) if you would like to watch an italian porno i would ask you go to your kitchen and look under the sink, and I'm sure you can find two Brillo pads. <laughs> Take those Brillo pads and just fucking rub them together. Just really get them going, and that is an Italian porno.
1: Uh, and just imagine watching Kevin work that out on a webcam, and that's, that's what happened in my life right now. Yep, sure did.
0: Fred has been asked over and over what significant other, and more particularly, what Nookie are about. And he has gone on the record many different times, saying it is about this unnamed girl. So I'm going to quote from Durst in MTV News, but of course, in 1999. It's about my ex-girlfriend, how she treated me like shit, and how I couldn't leave her, wouldn't get over it. She screwed my friends and used me for my money. I tried to figure out why I did it, and I figured I did it all for the nookie. Okay, sure, Fred. He then goes on to describe her as, the sweet, innocent girl I was in love with who turned out to be this swinging-ass bisexual fucking my dirtiest friends. Okay. And then he tells Rolling Stone that he discovered the truth about this three-year relationship he'd been in. I thought she was a nice girl who had a job in a pet shop. I found out later she was sleeping with my friends.
1: Would you like to meet this girl? Yeah, who is it? The
0: best that I can figure is that it is a girl named Sage, and I don't have
1: her last name. And even if I did, I would not put it out there. Who is the girl that he he shouted out on Indigo Flow? Sage. Okay. All right. Cool. Pet Store Sage. So
0: Pet Store Sage was the girl who he, he shouted out on Indigo Flow. I'm gonna play you a little bit of a VHS rip from a video called Limp Biscuit Unauthorized. Now, the person who uploaded this said they found it in a thrift store and digitized it. <laughs> Nick, I've sent this to you before. It does not have one member of Limp Biscuit in it, nor does it have any Limp Biscuit music. Basically, somebody went around and interviewed all the fucking losers in Jacksonville they could who had any tangential relationship to Limp Biscuit, and then put it all together. Without further ado, I would like you to meet the muse behind Nookie. <laughs>
1: My name is Sage and I'm the (laughs) ex-girlfriend and uh, I guess I just help with the lyrics. He just pretty much wrote about things that we had gone through. That's how I helped that way. (laughs) I didn't like it at all. I didn't like flying, but I did it a lot from L.A. to here all the time. Or usually just to different cities that they were at and stay on the tour bus for a couple days and fly home and back and forth all the time usually. Jacksonville is a very boring town but it's home you know and that's where your roots are i guess and so now sage tell me who was the dirtiest of friends friends
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've never met somebody who embodies jacksonville femininity more oh yeah than... but
1: like that girl looks straight out of joliet illinois to me like there's a mentality that you can pick up and put down in many places across the United States. It is the petri dish which grows acts like limp biscuit. I have dated Sage. Mm-hmm. I I am one
0: broken condom away from being Sage's baby daddy. Nick, you're nodding your head. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I mean, been there. In that video, Sage was wearing like boot cut jeans with a baby doll tee that says "girl" on it, like. That's not to put down
0: sage because I don't know how I would feel if I were fucking some other yokel from Jacksonville and all of a sudden he goes on to be the biggest star on the planet by calling me a whore. Like, I don't, I don't think that's particularly fair. She was pretty nice about it. Yeah. Right. Like, she's like, I guess I miss Mears. (laughs) I do want to touch on Frederick's misogyny here for a moment. Uh, I do have another quote at this point. In his popularity, people are going like, wow, dude, you're like seeing a lot of really misogynistic shit. And his response to that is this. Well, I use the words bitch and whore in the song directed towards one person who was both of those things, if you ask me. (laughs) God damn. (laughs) To the naked eye, people that didn't want to take the time to listen to those words might think otherwise. But I definitely respect women. I have a better attitude than almost anyone I know
1: towards women big big donald trump energy here huge big time Dude, like i am the least racist person in the room yeah if you have to say that you know, uh, you... i love women like the world has never seen
0: and like his whole thing is that like Well, you know, when I use the words bitch and whore in a song, it's only about one person and you should know who that person is because I called the song Sage. No, you didn't, Fred. You you didn't say this is, hey, yo, this one goes out to the girl in the pet shop who fucked all my friends and she won't stop. Like, you didn't say that, Fred. You just made a song called Nookie. You fucking idiot. The video, and then we'll get off of this song, the video is incredible, and it's the best visual representation of the band, and it really is a major key in d- developing the whole Limp Biscuit, you know, uh, mythos. It's largely based on a number of guerrilla gigs, which Nick, you and I had talked about mm-hmm. uh, prior to this show. They're not guerrilla gigs, they're bullshit. They were Limp Biscuits showing up in cities and then playing a 15-minute set in a parking lot while the radio set prom- uh, station promoted it. And then the cops showing up and kicking everyone out. It's not illegal. Where the main inspiration for this came from though, according to Fred, was the YouTube video where the streets have no name, where they play on top of that record store. Yeah, you know yeah, I'm talking yeah, about? for sure. Yeah, so he had to say this about the Nookie video too. Do you wanna guess who he said it to, Nick? MTV? yes yes he sent it to Catching mtv along. so he had this to say about uh, where the streets have no name you know that video i love that video and what they did and i just kind of want to do the same thing but on a different scale different time it's really about the fans and it's you know it's about girls and it's about you know that's what rock and roll's about you know the fans the girls live shows you know i would say everything but alcohols in this video which is, you know, you don't need to have alcohol to have a fat rock show. Throw in the limp biscuits to do a little girl-powered dancing, and there you go. You have yourself a little fat-ass video in an alley.
1: Uh, I hate that he says fat so much. Yeah. You know what else I hate, aside from just his general lyrics? Like, you guys know the song. I did it all for the Nookies, so you can take that cookie and stick it up your yeah. Like, it's terrible. But then in one of the verses, he goes, she put my tender heart in a blunder. And I'm like, are we paying tribute to Eve 6 now? Eve (laughs) 6? Like, that that song came out, like, five years, four years before this, four? So, like, are we really paying tribute to that? Or was it just a lazy lyric? I I don't know. Basically, Fred is just slut-shaming a girl. Oh, yeah.
0: Like... It's one of those things where, like, he doesn't even realize he's becoming, like, the biggest star on the planet.
1: All he cares about is, fuck you, Sage! Meanwhile, like, oh, we see you, bro. Like, oh, she she fucked all my friends and I had to write a song, but then I only did it for the nookie. Like, which one is it, bro? Did she break your soul, or were you just doing it to get laid? Shut up.
0: Exactly. All right, so moving on, break stuff.
1: (sighs) This is the sound of an empty monster energy drink can bouncing around the cab of a Dodge Ram at 5.05 p.m. (laughs) on a Friday night in Topeka,
0: Kansas. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh, fuck, you're right. You're right. You're right. You know, I was gonna read a quote, fuck it. (laughs) No, you nailed it.
1: Somewhere in the USA, a cop has slammed the basement door on his wife after calling her a dumb bitch and making her cry. And is now blaring this at top volume while he pounds Budweisers. <laughs> God Almighty! For real, are basic dudes in their forties like still lift weights to this song? Like this is on their like lifting playlist on Spotify? Oh uh, get yeah, out of here.
0: The quote in question is, "What is break stuff about?" And according to Fred, about having a bad fucking day, and how my D keeps going this way, I'm gonna break something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna skin Uh, your ass raw. I
0: I think that the scariest thing about this is that, is the video. Because this is the point where they truly demonstrate the power that they have in this moment. The video was shot at Scape Lab. Its cameos include Snoop Dogg, Jonathan Davis, Dr. Dre, Eminem and his daughter Alec Baldwin, Paulie Shore, Derek Jeter, Roger Daltrey, Bam Margera, Bucky Lasek, Seth Green, Stryker, Riley Hawk, Aaron Lewis, Flea, and Lily Aldridge. Oh, wait, and here's a weird one for you, Richard Lewis. These guys commanded the biggest, the biggest fucking names in sports and music to show up in their video and pantomime Fred Durst lyrics.
1: We haven't talked about this in the last episode or this one, but Fred Durst has a daughter and Mm -hmm. he was married and he has a daughter named Adriana and at the time that this record hits, she's nine. Mm -hmm. So this nine-year-old has to turn on MTV and watch her dad sing about doing it all for the Nookie. That's not normal.
0: No, it's not. The daughter in question, so Fred being stuck in Gastonia, he joined the Navy, and he was in the Navy for two years uh, before he was discharged, I guess, because he's Fred Durst.
1: Oh, he uh, broke his hand skateboarding or something.
0: He met his first wife, Rachel, uh, in the Navy, and they were married for three years, and that's, that's when he had his daughter. And they, they got divorced, and she went on to live her life, and I'm assuming raise his daughter while uh, he's banging pet store sage. And then becomes the biggest fucking star on the planet. <laughs> because life isn't fair. I just want to put it, yeah, life is not fair. This is the lint biscuit story for the rest of us. Life isn't fucking fair. Nick, do you have anything else to add to break stuff? No, I'm, I'm pretty good. Okay, next up is Rearranged. And in a very, very hard pivot from everything we've discussed prior to this, this is an actual moment of vulnerability in his lyrics. Some of the folks on the internet seem to think that this is actually about his first wife. I can't find any solid evidence of this, but regardless, it's probably the most personal that we're going to get on the album.
1: All right, so here's my take. It, it, it isn't like any other Limp Bizkit song, you're right, but this is Limp Bizkit trying to make a red hot chili pepper song. Oh, fuck.
0: <laughs> oh, god damn it.
1: But Fred had to make it another breakup song because nobody wants to hear a song glorifying Florida like the Chili Peppers sing about California. We got meth, we got meth, we got alligators and meth.
0: Bring your AR-15 down to Jacksonville, Florida.
1: Jesus Christ. that good? Huh? Yeah, yeah, you're fucking...
0: Get you a Grammy. Yeah, you can't tell I just popped my shirt off and I'm doing the... <laughs> no i i think you're absolutely right however what they did with that song on their video is a direct response to the fallout from the woodstock 99 performance this video while not about woodstock 99 was their first video filmed after woodstock 99 it has judge matt pinfield presiding
1: for those that don't know matt pinfield was an mtv vj and like uh, harbinger of cool hard rock music at the
0: time. Yeah, and we'll get to him in a minute. I, I don't want to spend too much time on Woodstock 99 because the people over at Podcast 99 covered it uh, more expertly than I could have. But long story short, in retrospect, there's no way that you can pin the violence and the rioting that occurred on Limp Biscuit or their set. But because they were the most outrageous and frankly just you know interesting act and heaviest act well i i don't even know if you call it the heaviest because rage played metallica played corn played but everybody looked to limp biscuit and especially the song break stuff as kind of the oh that's why they rioted that's why they burn shit down which is a simple fucking narrative which just frankly isn't true i would I, i would actually urge you If you haven't, go back and watch that performance because Limp Biscuit has earned all of their fans to this point through their live performance. And on this set, they are fucking on fire. Like, you can just feel the energy coming off of that entire performance. Like, Wes is killing it. And uh, John and Sam are just like, they're fucking in the pocket. And Fred, this is the biggest crowd he's ever played to. And he figures out how to work with that many things thousands of people it's it's awesome but the style of music they play and the dumbassery of their lyrics when somebody starts a full-scale riot yeah they're gonna point to that
1: sure i will say and i mean yes podcast 99 broke it down better but i think there is some honesty and like we'll talk about this and a couple more songs on this album but fred definitely engineered his songs for the mosh pit and for the big the big moment everybody's knowing the song because the album's been out for a little bit now and it builds into this dinner dinner i'm like a chainsaw i'll skin your ass raw and if my day keeps going this way i just might break something tonight and then the last time he goes just might break your fucking face tonight and then better right and like that is asking for everybody's waiting and that's when the pit's going to break. And that's when it's going to go as hard as possible. Is that Limp fault? Absolutely not. They're engineering a moment for the live show. But I could easily see like that moment being the the linchpin or the moment that like the crowd collided and then shit got out of hand. I believe
0: they came out with Counterfeit, which is like, goddamn, like, yeah, if you're going to start throwing haymakers at the gate, that's the song to do it to. But then, like, their second song is Show Me What You Got, which we'll get to in a minute, which is a boring fucking totally. song. The song that would have made me want to start lighting things on fire, they covered Ministries, Thieves and Liars, which is just a fantastic song. That's why I think that Limp Biscuit might have, like, a little bit of cred. Is, like, they're throwing covers of, like, ministry songs that nobody's really right. into, and they're playing them at Woodstock. I'm of two minds about it. They've built songs for the purpose they were built for. Is it their fault that something else happened during that? No. Yeah, no,
1: no. I don't blame them for it. I don't I don't think that he stood on stage being like, burn, motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, like, he was just playing his song. Uh, I, and do I believe that a song can start a riot? No. But do I believe that people that, like, haven't had enough to eat or drink for a bunch of days and stayed up doing drugs in an aircraft or an airplane yeah. hangar for three days, like get to that moment. And then they're like, Fuck it, let's mosh, you know? And like, I, I can just see like a mosh pit can get out of hand. And like, that's mm-hmm. not the artist's fault, but yeah, I mean, to, yeah. I mean, Limp Bizkit did play a, a festival in Australia. Not too long after that, where somebody did die and it fucked them up. It fucked them
0: up a lot. Like you never want somebody to, die right
1: it's the same like, thing it wasn't like it wasn't the rolling stones fault that like a hell's angel stabbed a guy at altamont aside from the fact that don't hire hell's angels to be your security guards at a concert but yeah. uh,
0: behind every shitty band is a shitty promoter and just remember sure. the promoters
1: nick you got anything else to add to that yeah well so the end of the song really lets well even the whole song it really lets lethal go mm. there's a lot of turntable work on this song and it doesn't bother me and a personal tangent. Uh, well, I've never seen Limp Bizkit. I did, you know, that band, The Neighborhood? They had that song, Sweater Weather. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them play a show in Las Vegas to like 40 kids inside a pool hall that DJ Lethal owns. Holy I mean, it was shit. Super tight. <laughs> yeah, it was super rad. Okay, so I'm broke. This song
0: is the new metal version of Small Claims Court. <laughs> it is. Nick, had you not mentioned earlier that this was something that was written for $3 Bill?
1: yeah it was written in that time and then it just didn't make the record it's one of those classic new metal riffs that are just one chord yeah which i like but
0: it is about like i don't have money it's it's about arguing in the parking lot of a buffalo wild wings with your weed man in the case of durst versus punk ass the court finds the plaintiff broken for that you deserve a smack and for (laughs) slacking
1: i like how he goes If I'm a slacker, it's through the eyes of the ones that are blind. Like, oh, I'm so smart and introspective. This whole album, Fred is like, this is his time when he knows he's got MTV backing him. He's got Interscope money. At this time, Fred Durst is a senior vice president of A&R for Interscope Records, Mm -hmm. by the way, Um, which is insane that they would, like, that's a big money job um and then whatever but he has this the biggest microphone in the world and he's gonna be like it's your time fred show him that you're a tough guy and that you can kick some ass tell him so like he just this whole album is him threatening people but this song dies when he rhymes pay the piper with shit in a diaper (laughs) hey also here's what i think the pitch was for fred to become
0: an a and r hey uh fred you think you can get any of those idiot fucking friends ears in Florida to sign a bullshit record deal? <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, uh, hey, uh, Taproot, uh sign on the line here, and uh, you don't. You, we own your rights, yeah. but you can you can go on the Family Values tour. Yep,
0: yep. That's I I, I believe that is exactly why Freddie was there. Is because uh, <laughs> hey, you think you can get any more of those fucking morons to uh, with 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 the big dress jeans to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God.
0: Uh, yeah. So there's a secret track. We get our first secret track, which is two messages from Fred Durst's answering machine. The first is a message from Mathematics, who is the acclaimed producer for Wu-Tang Clan and actually created the Wu-Tang Clan logo. Huh. And it's just M A hey, Fred, it's Mathematics, blah, blah, blah. The second one is from West Borland you know that like fake threat, like, hey, you think you're a tough guy? Come here over here, I'll kick your ass, tough guy. Mm-hmm. That's just Wes Borland, like leaving a message for Fred is all that is. He told the Chicago Tribune, it was a message he left for me someday when I was down. he cheered cheer me up. I'm happy now. The subject matter is entirely fiction.
1: Huh. I couldn't find anything about it, so you're better at Google than me, but that
0: I kind of like that. I actually found an entire article from the Chicago Tribune about the artistry of the Answering Machine skit.
1: Who wrote that shit? Jim D. Regattas? <laughs> I'm sure.
0: <laughs> Moving on is Nobody Like You. I'm gonna
1: say that this is my the best song on the album. I don't think there is a best song on the album. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so this song isn't really about anything. It's, to me, it's boilerplate new metal. You know, it's, it's extremely new metal. It's got the big syncopated guitar parts. Jonathan Davis and Scott Weiland are on this song. Mm-hmm. John Davis is trying to sound scary. He's got his corn voice going. I don't fucking know why Scott Weiland is there. But can you imagine the amount of drugs in the recording studio? And, like, you got to time this right. Like, you have to record this at the perfect moment where the meth didn't have Jonathan too jittery and the heroine stopped Scott Weiland from being too jittery. But (laughs) right before he fell asleep, while Fred Durst is just doing blow off a row of 90s porn stars. (laughs) Uh, Oh, fuck.
0: Would you like to see all three of these masterminds in the studio
1: together? Oh, yeah. Here's my prediction. Jonathan Davis looks like he needs to take a shower.
0: (laughs) I'm not. You know what? Let's review the tape. This is from a Limp Biscuit documentary that their buddy was filming. And this shit never got released. So what you're seeing is him with shaky hand cam filming a screen and you can kind of hear some of him talking over it.
1: Right here. I've
0: got a I'm just like a question-answer thing. i like, do an the
1: answer. I have to actually fucking sing it in my language, and I go in there and I write to what I was saying. All right. Hell yeah.
0: Yeah. So you've got. Scott Weiland is grinding his jaw into dust.
1: Yeah. He looks cool, though. He's got, like, this, Turtle uh, neck. Sh- this turtleneck with these cool earrings, and, like, uh, he's got, like, this Hitler Youth haircut <laughs> thing going on. It's... it's it, What a
0: weird fucking time. But, no, like, Scott Weiland came on as a vocal coach for Fred Durst, and they actually formed a real partnership. They would go on to collaborate on... uh the track Hold On from Chocolate Starfish in the Hot Dog Flavored Water. And apparently they had a movie that was going to get filmed. About what? <laughs> well, in a press release to... Do you want to guess who the press release is to? On TV? Yeah, no, good guess. Apparently, Fred was going to direct a movie uh, with his friend Mark Racco, who, by the way, was the person who filmed all that and said that Fred turned all his footage to shit. So I'm gonna guess that uh, that did not happen. Here's what Fred had to say about this movie at the time. It's probably an easy rider meets The Breakfast Club of 1999 with a really dark twist to it. A really real twist to it. And Scott's going to be in the movie. He's going to have a really cool role in the movie, but I don't know if I should give away the character. No, because then I have to tell the story. And then Scott Weiland says, the character is a mysterious hitchhiker type of individual. The end. Yeah, that's uh, Easy Rider meets the Breakfast Club and Scott Wilde is a drifter. <laughs> there you have it. Also, a big rest in power to Scott Wilde. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: one of the least surprising rock and roll deaths. Like him and Amy Winehouse. No <laughs> shit. It seemed like they had a genuine
0: affection for each other they worked like really really tight with each other for a long time i looked for you know fred durst reaction or anything to scott wyland's passing or even an acknowledgement of it nothing i don't know what happened there but uh next off is don't go off
1: wandering and this track uh nick what you got okay the only interesting thing about this song is that it has some wild fucking strings. Like, I'm a sucker for an orchestra in a dark song. That's why Meredynome by a perfect circle rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is a perfect circle new metal? I would say so. Maybe? I would say so. Whatever. Homes is an amazing record. If it, if they are new metal, that's the best new metal record ever. Fight me. No, I I will not. I think that this track uh, <laughs> demonstrates
0: real growth and Wes actually says I think we were thinking a lot more classical. We really wanted a really emotional, dramatic piece of music. So, like, can you fucking imagine going to Juilliard, perfecting your craft, and then all of a sudden you have to go into a biscuit
1: session? Yeah. Before you open up your cello, you gotta, like, knock all the buggy-like cans <laughs> off the table. <laughs> I do have an interesting
0: piece of trivia about this. There was a lot of behind-the-scenes drama in this song. Okay. All right, so the demo for Don't Golf Wandering had guest vocals by Serge from System of a Down.
1: Hey, Kevin, how do you pronounce his last name? Uh, fuck!
0: <laughs> you know how I pronounce it? Serge from, from System of a Down. Down. <laughs> That's exactly how I pronounce that. So it contained guest vocals from him, but it was later removed in the final album version after Fred Durst had a fallout with the band Taproot. This is the most 90s thing ever. So Taproot and System of a Down shared the same management team, uh, Velvet Hammer. And ultimately that led to System of a Down being kicked off the 99 Family Values tour. What happened between Taproot and Limp Biscuit to cause this huge divide?
1: I know that... Fred was the one that signed them. I remember seeing like a MTV behind the scenes where he was on the phone with with Taproot.
0: Yeah, so Taproot, they were from Ann Arbor uh, and that's a college town. So a lot of these college radio stations, they'd get advanced copies of albums to review and whatever. And then they would sell them. I know this because I did this, but they would wind up selling them or passing them off to the members of Taproot. So what happened was that on this Advanced copy of the album, there was a number to send demos to uh, for Flip. And Taproot had that address before anybody else. They got their demo in front of Fred Durst earlier than anybody else. And they started kindling up this friendship. Every time they'd come to town, they would open for Limp biscuit They would share the stage with them on certain songs. The lead singer, Stephen Richards, even goes on to say, I went to L.A. and stayed with him and got to sit through Interscope meetings about their second recording coming out at the time. Here's where it goes off the rails, according to Steven Richards again. He got mad at us when he heard that we were playing for other people. We wanted Fred to work out, but we weren't going to say no to everyone else who came knocking on the door. And that's when we met with our longtime management who represented System of a Down. So opportunities opened up for Taproot with System of a Down. They went for it. He goes on to say, "We got a show in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we opened up for them. The liaison that was there liked us, so we went to L.A. and played for Rick Rubin. When Fred heard, he left a scary, stupid message on my mom's answering machine."
1: Yes, I. This is ringing a major <laughs> bell. Yeah, is it?
0: Yeah, I remember this. Okay he left a scary stupid message on my mom's answering machine about how we'd be blackballed from the industry and if i ever showed up to one of his shows he'd kick my ass this is a thing that the biggest star in the planet does because he is
1: yeah wild. yeah yeah yeah, and yes yeah, system of a down helped taproot get that atlantic deal so then he durst kicked system off the family values tour
0: mm-hmm. and what does steven richards from taproot have to say about this well he seems pretty cool about it. he goes at the end of the days, they've dwindled, I'm actually still a very big fan of theirs. Wow. Would you like to hear the version of Serge on Don't Golf Wandering? Yeah, sure. It's real dumb.
1: before, no sensitized by past his <laughs> Yeah, that uh, contributed a lot. That was that was great.
0: Yeah, that was that was great. <laughs> that was just wonderful.
1: I don't even think he was in the room. I think they're like, hey, just go into your uh, your home studio and whatever you want, just do whatever yeah. you want, and then we'll paste it into the song. <laughs> you are the. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, whatever happened it is a good old fashioned. Oh! <laughs> so yeah, that that that's a thing that exists, and you can find that online should you want. Next up is the most 1990 way to spell 1999, oh, and that God. is
1: 1999. <sighs> oh, so this is another one where the whole point of the song is to get a pit going at the live show. Yep. So he jumps right into this. No use in dreading what they call Armageddon, and now you motherfuckers got a reason to jump. And then everybody moshes. Um, my favorite part, though, is he has this line because Fred was if if he is too believed and he invented Red Cap as this personality of himself. He was very accessorized. He had his brand loyalty, he had the red you know new era or Yankees hat, and he wore G Shock watches. Which <laughs> if you don't know what a G Shock is? Google it. It's not cool, but he literally goes, you want to be down with the G-Shock, fuck the glam rock, assed out like Ken Shamrock. Ken Shamrock, like one of the most notable mixed martial artists of all time. I don't know what being asked out means. Me, me neither. <laughs> also,
0: if you want to know what a G-Shock looks like, next time you go down to a BLM protest and get tear gassed by cops, <laughs> pay attention to the wristwatch they're wearing as they throw you into a paddy wagon. Because mm-hmm. I guarantee fucking you it's a G-Shock.
1: Yeah, that's that's about as accurate as it gets.
0: Nick, I'm actually going to blow your mind a little bit here. All right, hit me. 1999. The song was actually supposed to be a cover of 1999
1: by Prince. How how do you know this? Oh no, Kevin's going to the tape. Happy New Year! Let me see the man. And when I wrote this to should be if it goes straight When I woke up this morning Could have sworn it was judgment
0: day Are you ready?
1: So, Prince, one of the heroes of melody, sings <laughs> one fucking note through the whole thing. <laughs>
0: Obviously, Prince did not give them the rights <laughs> to record that song.
1: <laughs> oh, say 2000, zero, zero, party over, out of time. <laughs> Just one note. <laughs> all right so that's about the second worst prince cover i've ever heard kevin do you want to hear the worst prince cover ever you know i do well you may think this is the sound of some kids in a basement this is metallica playing in an arena in minneapolis in 2018 you and I- meanwhile this chud is reading the lyrics off of a music stand because they clearly just had this idea the day before because it's like right after prince died i think here we're, here it goes Here's the chorus Like oh, so, yeah, that's Metallica playing an arena uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, Full of people. To... Yeah, and I think James and Lars were like, oh, I'm not doing that. So it's no. just fucking Kirk Hammett and Rob, the bass player, come out and just do that. And this is what happens when you're surrounded by yes men for too long in your career. Somebody should have stopped that. But anyway... Somebody should have stopped that.
0: <laughs> anyway... Uh...
1: Let's, back so, to the subject in hand. Yeah, so 1999 was
0: originally supposed to be the cover 1999 by Prince. Prince obviously said, fuck you forever, and uh, <laughs> would not give them the rights to record that. So as a kind of, I don't know, fuck you to Prince, which doesn't really work, did 1999- Spell that funny.
1: Yeah, and the song vaguely, like I said, it's just designed to get a pit going but when he says there's no use in dreading what they call Armageddon, it's alluding to, you know, the world ending and whatever, but they're not good at it and Fred Durst sucks at writing words, so Yep.
0: This does, however bring in the second secret track from none other than Fred Durst's mom, Anita Durst The song she's singing is called My Billy Goat and that was not good enough for me So I did a little bit of research. The song that Anita Durst is singing for all of three seconds, which is titled as My Billy Goat. This is a loose adaptation of the song Bill Grogan's Goat, which in turn is almost certainly based on a poem by British Canadian poet and writer Robert Service, often called the Bard of the Yukon. So the Service poem is the ballad of Casey's Billy Goat. And in this instance, the goat is called Seamus. So throughout the years, different singers would pick up different fragments of this and use it as needed. Of note is the Fiddlin' John Carson's version called Papa's Billy Goat. Now, Carson's version, incidentally, has a final verse in which the singer marries a widow and the widow's daughter marries the singer's father, right? This would almost certainly prove to be inspiration for the 1947 song, I'm My Own Grandpa, performed by country music duo Lonzo and Oscar.
1: All right. It's
0: about fucking your kin.
1: Wonderful. Florida. (laughs) Come on, man. I spent half my day doing this. Oh, that, that is definitely Kevin OCE level right there. Like this three-second secret track. Kevin's like, let's go.
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like Now that you put it like that, <laughs> I could have been spending time with people who love me. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, Christ. Well, then, In Together, which is, I'm going to say, probably my second favorite song on the album. The working title as of April 1999 was Shut the Fuck Up.
1: Take all-
0: <laughs> yeah, uh this is I mean Method Man carries this song 100%. Yeah, DJ Lethal does a magnificent job on this beat. There is a writing credit to DJ Premier of Gangstar. I was like, "Well, okay, what did DJ Premier do for this?" Cuz either Lethal did the beat or Premier did Was it beat.
1: did they sample something that he did? No.
0: Here's DJ Premier talking to Sirius FM about why he did not want to work with limb biscuit
1: and meet meet you i said cool we came comes to come to D, we kick it he goes down he says straight up i know you don't like me he, you know you uh, you gotta love fred fred's good people he said uh i know you don't like the way i rap you think i suck or whatever this is a dream of mine to do he goes let me just tell you something i have your tape kings tapes This is street shit you got to know. And he goes, and I love that G-Dep head over wheels. Now, that's that's below Super Underground. I'm like, (laughs) you know about head over wheels? And he goes, yeah, man, that's my jam. He starts quoting the lyrics. I'm like.
0: This is basically Fred's Make-A-Wish Foundation request. Oh, yeah. I want to work with Method Man and DJ Premier. And he got it. Next song is trust <laughs> with a question mark.
1: And this feels like a track that they left off of $3 bill. All the Fred Durst songs are songs about people that have screwed him over. Like Fred Durst completely must surround himself with just assholes. It's almost like a, the Jacksonville tattoo and skate 23 year old divorced Dad scene. Is it full of the best <laughs> dudes in the world? <laughs> On to no sex. All right, I got stuff to say. <laughs>
0: Featuring America's favorite pandering patriot, Aaron Lewis
1: of State. Oh Nick, take it away. God. All right, so this song is about Fred talking about, it's too fast, blah, 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 about like, oh, we shouldn't have had sex already. Like, there's only sex here. There's no depth to this relationship. We probably shouldn't have. Th- this song should have been called Post Nut Clarity. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, just. Totally misogynistic. There's this is awful lyric. Or Fred goes, "Wait, it's my ass and your perfume. They make temptation hard to refuse. So I guess we undressed to have sex, dirty sex." And I'm like, "Fred, wash your ass, man. What? Wash your fuck? ass, dog. <laughs> what the fuck?" And then here comes Aaron Lewis with some, "How can you respect yourself?" Misogynistic bullshit. This is like a song that they play at one of those Christian haunted houses. <laughs>
0: Oh God, this is this is right after all the gay kids get in a car crash. yeah, and, and, and Satan comes to take them and then I know this because I went to a hell house. <laughs> I went to a hell house around this time. Yeah, a kid listening to Nirvana blows his head off and then uh, a gay kid dies of AIDS and then a girl who has premarital sex, she no, I'm sorry, she dies in a car crash.
1: Her baby goes to heaven and she doesn't because she didn't <laughs> love her baby. Yeah. This is a song for, for that sect. Like, it, it has, like, some Christian alt rock vibes to it in itself, oh, just it. in the production. But, like, fuck Aaron Lewis. We're gonna, fuck him for We're going to get into some serious Aaron Lewis conversation in a few episodes. But fuck that guy. Next up is Show Me What You Got, or as I like to call it, Hey, that's the place. That's the place where we live. <laughs> oh, totally. This is like um a crappy version of Sublime's April 26, nineteen ninety two. Yeah. It was like Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Yeah. It's it's all about like, okay, what are all the
0: shitball B markets we have to play? And yep. how do we make somebody punch someone in one of those markets?
1: I was getting shitty down in Kansas City. <laughs> I need a Kleenex every time I visit Phoenix. <laughs> You're not even yeah. I may never leave again the next time I'm in Cleveland.
0: <laughs> and you know, you know what's really fucking insane to me? This is the second song they played at Woodstock.
1: Yeah, that's wild. I mean, may- maybe because they knew that so many people traveled from around and they thought they'd get, oh, well, maybe all of the people from Wichita Falls will be together in one spot. We'll hear them all cheer. I want my balls in Wichita Falls. <laughs> you know. Uh, and it's kind of a throwback to Indigo Flow off a $3 bill. Like, Yeah, or, yeah. It's know. the shout out song. And he does the Busta Rhymes thing. He does a <laughs> <laughs> like three times. Yeah. So we are,
0: uh, pardon my pun, limping across the finish line with A Lesson Learned. And honestly, I don't have a fucking thing to say about this.
1: No, it's I don't even know what it is. It's a song about how he's dealing with being punished for his bad decisions while at that same point in time, he's like bragging about banging Britney Spears and try, and Christina Aguilera. Fuck off, Fred. Fuck you, Red Cap. Fred, I'm sorry your house
0: burned down. Oh
1: yeah, if you didn't hear Fred's house totally burnt down in those California fires over the past couple months. Yeah. We don't wish that on anybody, even though I think Fred Durst of the past is kind of a piece of shit. Fred Durst now seems like kind of an okay guy. Yeah. Our
0: outro is two skits. We have Primus's Les Claypool. Uh, according to him, he got high in the studio and rambled for three minutes they wanted to make that the intro that didn't work. So they made a secret track on the outro. And then it is brought to a close by the arbiter of cool
1: Matt Pinfield. This has big info Wars vibes. (laughs) This like it's Matt Pinfield doing this like angry white man rant. Like before it was a thing that we deal with every day on the internet now, but like it's seriously like some Alex Jones shit. He says, That's because CDs like this one spare you from all the chart-topping, teeny-popping, disposable, happy horseshit that brings out the bile from the back of my neck. Adrenochrome. (laughs) (laughs) Buy my colloidal silver to ward off the coronavirus. (laughs) Oh my god, it totally is. It totally is. And
0: that is how significant other draws to a close. Nick, do you have any other parting thoughts on this album?
1: No, I just like, I I gotta stress it. Like Limp Biscuit was for me being in my little small town. You know, I discovered them pretty early from somebody else at the skate park. And like, they were like my little secret. And when they became the biggest band of the world and they did this shit, I had to move on after this. And like, you know, I will always credit this era of new metal for like getting me into heavy music. And I'm glad that not too long after this, I was able to um, expand and, and, you know, be where I'm at now. But this really was a big turning point for me where I just, um, this band lost me. I don't even think I've listened to the follow-up to this record, Hot Dog Water or whatever.
0: Oh, I'll cover that one.
1: Thank you. Uh, I mean, I remember, you know, rolling and I, I just roll in my eyes. <laughs> that was not intentional, <laughs> but... Yeah, this, this was the death of a band that I really liked. And it's funny, just going back you know, to two weeks ago's episode, I don't know that I like this band as much as I like the idea of this band.
0: I can definitely agree with that. I have been very, very fortunate and privileged not to have too much trauma in my life. I look back on this fondly because I will always be that 17-year-old kid lying to his parents about a sleepover to go make out with a college girl in Chapel Hill. That to me is just kind of like this halcyon moment that this album encapsulates. But in retrospect, is it dumb?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because we were dumb.
1: That's pretty accurate. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, just kids in the suburbs. This was uh, this was our thing. And, yeah. You know, it was just such a weird time for music. And, you know, it was right before napster came in and just fucked it all up and you know ushered in the mp3 era like this was the last time that people bought tons of records you know you had a booklet of cds in your car seven times
0: platinum i just want to remind everybody of that seven times platinum but yeah that draws to a conclusion significant other by limp biscuit nick what you listen to
1: i'm gonna go with the new album by samantha crane Called a small death. Those most of you know probably know by now that I don't just listen to heavy shit. So this is kind of singer songwritery. It's got a little bit of an alt country vibe. Uh, I'm still digesting it. I just kind of got into it. But uh, the song that I will recommend is called An Echo. It's got a really lovely pedal steel all over it, and it's uh, it's really nice. So yeah, Samantha Crane. The song is An Echo.
0: I don't know if it's just by proxy of this show, but I have really. Honest to God, been enjoying the new Marilyn Manson album called "We Are Chaos." I didn't even know there was one, dude. So he got in the studio with Shooter Jennings.
1: Oh, well, that's cool.
0: It's just a really solid, good kind of like moody rock record. The song that I would recommend is "Broken Needle." This is not the Marilyn Manson. Ooh, he's a shock rocker. Like he's in his mid forties, and he's just a musician. Nick, where can they find us?
1: All right. You're going to find us at Days of the New, D-A-Y-Z of the N-U, on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, there is a playlist of Spotify of the stuff that me and Kevin are listening to and the key songs from these albums.
0: Yes. And you can find me on Instagram at K-J-D-E-L-U-R-Y. You cannot find me on Twitter because i mean do i really have to even fucking no explain we, we, it know this point? we know the joke we know the joke you know the you, joke
1: you can find me at nick underscore the underscore knife on instagram and twitter and yeah i guess that's probably a wrap and uh because you know it's season two we're gonna keep the train on rolling and kevin what are we doing
0: you wanted the worst you got the worst we are going to be visiting the put the money where your guitar is contest by limp bizkit
1: so this is a, a, a different approach from what we normally do. We usually, uh, you know, talk about albums, but we have uh, quite a story to tell you uh, that really wraps up the corporate kind of uh, place that Limp Bizkit ended up around this time. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So check us out in two weeks. All
0: right, guys. See you then. So-